another way to put it would be, you know, the old line of, you know, nobody ever got fired for, for buying IBM. I think the modern version of saying that would be no one ever got fired for buying the category leader. And if you become the category leader, you just get all these sales by default. Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is legendary entrepreneur turned venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, David Sachs. And on this episode, we have a real conversation about how to build billion-dollar startups. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the number one oddcast for people who value real, different conversations about business and life. Now, on this episode, we continue our run of extraordinary VCs in Silicon Valley. David was an entrepreneur. He was a co-founder of PayPal. He was the founder and CEO of Yammer, which was acquired for north of a billion dollars by Microsoft. And today he's the founder of Kraft Ventures. And some of his investments include a few companies you might have heard of, companies like Facebook, Uber, SpaceX, Airbnb, and Bird. And look, I know I say it a lot, but candidly, this is another amazing example of the power of a real dialogue podcast. There's a lot of people who would love to sit down for dinner or beer with David and pick his brain. That's exactly what happens on this episode. We talk about how startups can get off the rails, uh, what is okay to lose money on and what is not okay to lose money on, why B2C strategies have become powerful for B2B companies, and David's thoughts on how to design, define, and dominate a market category. Additionally, what areas of technology David's excited about and think hold a lot of promise for the future, and much more. If you're an executive or an entrepreneur, even if you're outside of tech, get your pen ready. There's a ton on this uh, on this uh, episode. Go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes and key takeaways for this episode. We'd love it if you subscribe to our newsletter. And uh, my friends at NetSuite by Oracle are the number one cloud business system. And NetSuite offers you a full picture of your finances in one place in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. And frankly, that's why NetSuite customers are super high growth companies. As a matter of fact, they grow three times faster than the typical S&P 500 company. To schedule your free demo right now and to receive your free guide, the seven key strategies to grow your profits, check out netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different for your free guide today. And um, I also want to ask you, do your people think your company is awesome? My friends at Socrates.ai are the leading digital conversation hub, and they want to help you make your company employee awesome. Imagine if you and your people could talk or text any HR question and get an answer back instantaneously. That's Socrates. Check out S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I today and learn how to get employee awesome. Also, if you're a regular listener to this oddcast, you've heard Eddie Yoon and I talk about the power of a data flywheel. And I think, frankly, data we are at a point now, and I know this sounds outrageous, but I personally think data is more valuable than, cla than cash. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. And Splunk helps you bring data to every question, decision, and every action in real time. Check out splunk.com slash D to E as in data to everything. That's splunk.com slash D to E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. How do startups that appear to have product market fit where everything's going really well, um, you know, appear to kind of lose it or, or, or go off the rails? And, um, you know, obviously the biggest problem in startup land is just getting product market fit in the first place. But, but you know, even after that happens every year, there's these like high profile examples of companies that kind of, you know, like we work or something like that, that, that go off um, the, the, the rails. And, um, you know, there's more mundane examples as well. And um, so I've been kind of thinking about and cataloging like some of the biggest causes of, of why this, why this happens. And, you know, what are the first sort of big ones that pop to mind for you? Well, I've I kind of got a list of like 10 of them um, and maybe there's more, but I mean, these are kind of like my, the top 10 I've been able to come up with. Um, 
and, we, and I don't know that we have time to talk about all of them, but um, but we can kind of like quickly go through them and talk about what you want to talk about. Um, but I think you know, just in no particular order, you know, I'd say you know one is commoditization that kind of the rest of the world catches up with the the, the startups innovation. Number two is is cash. The, the cost of customer acquisition gets prohibitive. There's a bunch of reasons that can happen. Um, the, the third would be um, a, a gross margin problem, you know, negative gross margins. I actually wrote a blog post about this. Um, the fourth is um, some sort of external dependency. The rug gets pulled out from under the company. There's like some sort of platform or partnership risk. Um, five would be the, the leaky bucket, that there's a, a problem with, with churn and uh, retaining customers. Six would be regulatory compliance. A lot of com- sort of high-profile companies that have gone off the rails have, have done so because of some sort of regulatory violation. Um, th- there's a version of this I call the, the sales compliance problem where um, sales isn't selling the right things or doing the right things. That's number seven. Number eight would be uh, doing things that don't scale. Um, nine would be um, uh, the, the founder psychology problem of just kind of pushing things too far. Again, this is you know, something you, you see a lot in the media. Uh, and um, <clears throat> closely related to that would be the <clears throat> the company culture problem. Um, and then usually these things kind of come to a head, and this I guess this would be like number 11 or 10 and a half, is there's some sort of macro shock where, um, you know, the, the company goes out for financing and um, isn't able to, to, to raise a round because of one of the, the problems I mentioned, and then, you know, everything comes to a head, and... Um, and you have kind of a car crash. Um, so, but it's, you know, it's that, that's sort of like the, the big list, I think, of, of things that can go wrong with these, these sort of um, high growth companies. And, uh, you know, is there one or two that jump out at you as sort of being a bigger concern area than others? Or do you think it's roughly equal? Or how, how do you think about this list uh, when you look at it? Yeah, I mean, so I guess it depends on like what kind of company it is. Um, so like, for example, there's this whole com- uh, category of um, tech-enabled companies uh, where software is a key component of the product, but it's not the entire product. There's like a physical world component to, to the product or service the company is offering. And I just wrote a blog about the gross margin problem where you find out that um, you're basically selling dollar bills for 90 cents, that you know, you're selling something uh, below your, your unit cost. And you, so therefore, you're losing money on every, on every customer. And this has been the thing that seems to have um, kind of derailed a bunch of these um, sort of physical world startups um, uh, recently. And, um, you know, I think the, 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 the brief history of it is that software companies never really had to worry about gross margins. They had perfect gross margins. Um, you know, it was like, you know, software is the ideal sort of um, gross margin business where you know, all the expenses in creating the first copy of the software and then it's basically free to, to make additional copies or to provision additional users. Um, but when software started eating the world uh, and you know, you're doing things like deliveries or um, you, know, you're, you're, you have drivers and, and things like that, um, all of a sudden there is a co- sort of a unit cost to the product and, um, and you have to make sure that you're, um, you're, you're actually selling the product above its unit costs. And, um, you know, it requires a proficiency in cost accounting that a lot of startups just um, historically haven't had at the beginning. You know, they get it by, by the time they're late stage, they, they, they get it. But um, historically, they haven't had it in the early stages because they haven't needed it. And, um, you know, now they do. And so there's been a little bit of a, a reckoning for a lot of these, these, these types of companies. Well, and even if you think, I think about it in the context of, you know, uh, wanting to go public one day. And if you think about the revenue line and the expense line and how they graph, um, most investors in tech-enabled companies, if not software tech companies themselves, expect to see as that growth line continues up and to the right, that sooner or later, the expense line doesn't grow commensurate with the revenue growth line, right? That there's, that there's a margin expansion that happens as some kind of economies of scale and efficiencies or what have you. And so there's a, a point in which you can start to get some uh, lift in the margin. Yeah, there's operating leverage in the model. Yeah, and I think, I think this is one of the reasons why it actually is hard um, to get the gross margin problem right uh, for a startup because... In the early days, startups are just losing a lot of money. I mean, you know, every startup loses a lot of money. And, um, you know, gross margins is, is more a question of, like, what kind of money are you losing, you know? Um, 
and you know are you losing money on every transaction or are you you know losing money on overhead so it's like one thing you have to figure out is like what what kind of money are you losing and that's that's what's sort of um, tricky about in the early stages and then the other thing is you, you do make all these assumptions about the operating leverage you're, you're going to get and so um, you know it's most most businesses that have a gross margin issue um, you know what they'll tell you is that this is something we can solve with scale and um, as we get as we get more leverage and of course you just don't know that that's going to be true until you you get there and um, you know and and, and startups haven't really had the culture of, um, of of being very efficient about about costs. I mean, I think like the most surprising fact I read about the whole WeWork fiasco was that they had 15,000 employees. Like 15, like wh what are all those people doing? Like, I don't, I don't quite get it, you know? Because um, you're basically, you're basically reselling office space. Um, so it feels like uh, a lot of office managers, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I wonder if, you know, and, and so, so you add up like, you know, the number of people you would need to manage like one WeWork facility, it just, it, it, it just, it still doesn't seem like it quite adds up. Um, so, um, yeah. And I want to go back to this point you made, because yeah. I think it's a fascinating one and one that frankly, I don't hear a lot of people talking about this question. What kind of money are you losing? Mm -hmm. You write that losing money at the corporate level is okay. Losing money at the unit level is not. Right, because when you're losing money at the unit level, you can't make it up on volume. <laughs> um, when yeah, you're, if you're you selling, know, if, if if you're losing ten cents on every transaction, it doesn't matter how many transactions you do, right? Yeah, I mean, we have this problem at PayPal, you know, where we were losing money on every single transaction. Um, so we we had a um, we had kind of an early version of the the gross margin problem, and um, you know, and you know, obviously, we we're losing a ton of money at the corporate level as well. But we were also losing money on every single payment um, that went through our system, and um, we we eventually solved that mostly through migrating users to um, to paid accounts. You know, um, basically charging transaction fees, um, and so we we were able to solve that problem. But um, but yeah, I think you, you have to kind of understand like what kind of um, cost is it? Is it a um, is it a cog? You know, cost of goods sold, it's basically a, um, a a unit cost of of providing the the product or service, or is it you know corporate corporate overhead? You know, kind of a one uh, a, a a cost of um, providing the product for the first user as opposed to each subsequent user. And it made I don't know why my brain jumps here, but it does to. Uh, Amazon Prime or even a Costco, these companies that essentially charge you a fee to be able to do business with them, right? And so it's sort of an interesting, you talk a lot about the importance of pricing and it's sort of interesting to think that, do you know, I don't know off the top of my head, how much is Amazon Prime? Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, yeah I don't know. A hundred bucks a year, 125 bucks a year. I should know because I'm a member, but um, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But whatever it is, there's sort of, and of course, you don't have to do that to do business with them. But, um, you know, there's, there's, I think now 100 million Amazon Prime customers. And so it's an interesting thing to imagine a retail business saying, well, uh, um, join our program and get all these Scooby snacks. And they lock and load a massive amount of revenue up front. Right. And of course, yeah, they I mean, buy our, they make us pay for our loyalty, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Amazon, Thing was very clever because, well, I guess what they found out, there was sort of a famous blog post about this a while back, but what they figured out a long time ago was that the, 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 the biggest thing that, well, it was this, this sort of uh, conundrum where people wanted the, the goods right away. Um, I mean, they wanted to receive them quickly, but they hated paying for shipping, just hated paying for shipping costs. Um, so like an irrational degree, they just wouldn't do it. And so, um, Amazon basically figured out a way to give the shipping for free and, and have it be reasonably quick, but by getting people to opt into this um, subscription account. Um, and so it was, it was a very, it was like one of these like magical things where they're able to, to grow sales. Um, but, but yeah, they got people to kind of pay for it in a different way. Yeah. Now I'm also curious, you mentioned commoditization off the top. Um, how do you think, strategically about commoditization and, and making sure it doesn't happen to you? 
Yeah, I mean, in a sense, commoditization is the the thing that causes all the other problems in the sense that everyone's running around with their hair on fire because they're afraid that their innovation is going to get copied. And if they're not moving fast enough, you know, the... Um, you're you're on a you're on a bit of a hamster wheel, and um, if you're if you're not moving fast enough, you're you're kind of running in place, and um, and so you know the, the the tricky thing about software is it's it's really easy to copy, and I, I don't mean like pirate. I mean yes, you can steal the code, but that's not what I'm talking about. I guess what I'm talking about is reverse engineering the the software, so anybody can look at what you're doing and kind of create their own version, and um, so there's there's always um, you know, just a, a risk that if you're not moving fast enough, um, that you're you're not going to be able to to kind of lock in some proprietary advantage, some network effect, some scale effect before the rest of the market catches up to you. And and so what it does is it requires companies, startups, to um, grow faster. Um, uh, to you know, to to basically prematurely scale in a way. Um, where you, you can't wait for everything to be kind of perfectly figured out. Um, you know, maybe in like a business school, like case study, you would, uh, you would know your gross margins before you started, you know, expanding, or you would know that your contribution margin positive in your first market before you expanded into more uh, geos. But the, you know, the reality is that if you just wait uh, to get everything perfect, then um, somebody else will be you to, you know, to, 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 they'll grow faster than you. They will then get, you know, all the venture dollars. They will get um, more mind share, more customers, um, and uh, and you could lose this, the the market opportunity. So here's a fascinating thing that sort of rattles around in my head uh, in this regard. On one hand, you know, we have this discussion of quote unquote blitz scaling, and I think mm-hmm. you're right. When a when a giant category tips, and the, the the marketplace, the customers and the prospects in that market can't unsee this thing. And so demand's going to do what it's going to do. And in the case of some major things you've been involved with, uh, demand explodes. And if, if you don't scale to meet that demand, you, you are opening the door for other folks, right? And at the same time, we all know there are some huge disadvantages to quote unquote blitz scaling, right? There can be cultural right. ones like you mentioned and the Silicon Valley bad boy behavior shit can get out of control. There can be just failure to execute and you have things up with customers and get a, destroy your brand and reputation. You know, there's all sorts of things right. can, that can go wrong if you're going to jam your foot to the accelerator because the category right. explodes. And so how do you think about meeting the demand of this category you're driving and scaling into it without blowing yourself and your company up in the process? Yeah, well, I think Reed's point about blitz scaling is is that you trade efficiency for speed. Um, and I think that's generally a good um, trade-off for startups to make. Um, because to the extent that there are uh, network effects or other types of um, uh, re- you know, uh, you know, barriers, uh, to the extent there is a moat around your business idea, the, the first scaler uh, tends to be the, 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 the one to, to capture those benefits. Um, and in a certain sense, if there is no mode, if there are no um, benefits to, to being the first scaler, well, it doesn't matter anyway. Um, so you might as well kind of, you know, be the first to scale up and seize the market. If it turns out not to be a market anyway, well, you haven't lost anything. I mean, there, <laughs> there's a bigger, um, uh, there, there, there's more waste, but, uh, but the point isn't to be uh, efficient. It's to, uh, it's to kind of grab the market. Um, and, you know, in the early days of these um, of these markets, you, you really don't know exactly how big they're going to be. Um, I mean, there are certainly examples where you know markets didn't pan out, but there's many more examples of, of markets that ended up being so much bigger than people thought in the early days. Well, if you look at ride sharing, is a great example, right? I mean, it it nobody saw that coming. I don't care who you are, right? At the scale that it's at now. Well, I remember having this discussion around the, the poker table of my, you know, weekly poker game, and um, people were talking about the future market size as being somewhere between, um, you know, adding up the, the taxi industry and carry town cars. And, you know, my view on it was that it could be, it could be a lot bigger than that, because for me, I, I basically stopped driving. I just went full Uber. And so you could start to see the, the, the potential for it to, to replace car, car ownership, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it is generally hard in the early days to um, 
to see the full potential of these markets. I mean, I, I don't think we ever would have guessed 20 years ago that PayPal would today be like a $120, $130 billion market cap company. Um, I mean, and literally. Congratulations on 20 years later. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think we, we thought that at the time. We sold the company for $1.5 billion, and I don't think we thought it would be like 100 times bigger. Um, so, you know, at least, you know, I mean, I guess on some level you think it's going to be huge, but um, but it's 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 very hard to see how how big exactly it's going to be. You don't know, it, you know, is is one billion success? Is it ten billion? Is it a hundred billion? You know, you don't quite know the the magnitude of how big it's going to be. Um, well, and who knew that we'd be sitting here talking about three or four tech companies that are dancing around a trillion dollar market cap? Right. I mean, all these markets have turned out to be a lot bigger than we thought. I mean, with SaaS software. I mean, the optimistic people, you know, we were, we were doing Yammer, you know, circa 2008, 2009. So basically 10 years ago. And, um, I mean, that was, that was still at a point where the cloud was just presumptively insecure. I mean, every single sales conversation we had with a prospect and every, they all went the same way, which is, this sounds great. Can you burn it uh, and put it on a disc for us and send us the disc or put it on a server or something like that? And we'll, we'll, we'll run it on prem. And it really, what do you mean it runs on your data center, not our data center conversation? <laughs> right, right. And then, and then we'd have to explain like what multi-tenant meant. Then we have to explain how, you know, the, the electrons are not going to jump from, you know, your tenancy to, to someone else's. That there's no, you know, it's not like the data is going to somehow magically leak over to someone else's instance. Um, but, you know, these are com- kinds of conversations we have to have for years. And, um, but I guess my point is just, you know, we thought in those days that like a one to two billion market cap was kind of what success looked like. And, you know, and as a result, when we, we sold Yammer in 2012 to Microsoft for 1.2 billion, we thought that was sort of, you know, that was sort of what success looked like. And now, you know, you have SaaS companies that are pretty routinely, you know, IPOing for five, 10 billion. I think that the cloud 100, the average market cap at IPO now is like three to four billion. Uh, Salesforce is, I think Salesforce was like a five to $10 billion market cap company at the time we started. And, um, cause they, they were sort of like a competitor. And so we would, you know, kind of look at, look at them and they're, you know, 10 times bigger. They're $120 billion, $130 billion market cap company today. Yeah. So it's really, and, just and, and we just had, um, not long ago, Eric, Eric, you on, on from zoom mm-hmm. for the second time. And like, I think it was founded in 2011, if I'm remembering right? That's a $20 billion market cap company today. Right. Well, yeah. And I guess he did, um, the, what the first version of, of zoom, he sold to Cisco. That was, um, Webex. Webex. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's kind of like classic story where, you know, at the time they sold Webex, they probably didn't know how big the market was going to be. Um, and then he probably saw how big it got it at, um, Cisco and realized he could do it better and they weren't doing anything with it. So he basically, you know, did the idea again better and, you know, but this time, you know, how big a a market you're chasing. I'm just checking as you're talking, it looks like, uh, thanks to our friends at Google, Cisco paid 3.2 billion. So I think you're really onto something. I think the, the valuations and market caps and the, therefore the definitions of success when you and I were younger guys coming up, you know, a $3.2 billion outcome, extraordinary outcome. The outcome you had at PayPal, extraordinary. The outcome you had at Yammer, extraordinary. But to your point, it'd be actually interesting to ask um, a guy like that, or, you know, you think about Fred Luddy, the founder of, of ServiceNow, or uh, Dave Duffield and Anil Bushri, right? These, these entrepreneurs who have rode, ridden now multiple waves in the mm-hmm. same space. But it's, it is interesting to think WebEx $3.2 billion Zoom 20 billion. Yeah. I mean, like all the outcomes are basically 10 X bigger than we thought they were going to be 10 years ago. Um, and again, we were the optimistic people because we were the ones actually creating companies in the space. We were nuts. Like, I just think it's not going to be worth a billion dollars. What are you mental? Right. Who are you? Dr. Right. Evil. Yeah. So no, exactly. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, be, who knows, maybe they would tell you that they saw it all along, but, um, I mean, it's just, it, you know what? What SaaS has done is just turbocharged um, the, the the business model for software because um, you know you still have the same 
gross margin characteristics with with SaaS because again, it's you know it's it's basically free aside from hosting. It's basically free to provision the second, third, and nth user. Um, you know all the costs in creating the first version of the product. And so you know it, so if you can kind of I mean this was the the insight that Bill Gates had was to create cheap mass market software and you make it up on volume because it's so profitable. You know, just the more users you get, the more profitable it gets. There's tremendous operating leverage in these businesses, um, and um, and the cloud obviously makes it just you know way easier, way easier to use. You don't have to worry about deployment, maintenance, all this other stuff. Um, and so and so, what you've seen is an explosion of entrepreneurs going after niches that people didn't think were necessarily um, that valuable, and um, and it's just like every little niche is now getting filled out with um, some sort of unicorn software product. Yeah, and I mean, I can hear it in your voice. It, it, it's exciting to me. It sounds like it's exciting to you. Well, it's a, it, you know, it's it's a good thing as an investor. Um, you know, it 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 um, you know, there's just um, it, there there's there's a lot of there's I think there's still a lot of opportunity in business software. Although you know, obviously, it is one of these areas that everyone's kind of like woken up to. Yeah, I remember. I mean, there's now there's now all these like um, there's a bunch of micro VC funds who are um, basically investing in you know as in, in the category of the the thing that we were doing with Yammer ten years ago. I mean, like their their fund mandate like looks like our marketing materials from ten years ago. We were trying to convince people of um, you know like that that viral consumerized SaaS was like actually a thing, and now we have. I mean, I'm seeing like fellow investors whose entire thesis is to invest in that. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. I'm trying to remember what year it was, but there was a point in time as it relates particularly to enterprise and SaaS oriented businesses. I remember Jim Getz at Sequoia. I, I want to say it was in Forbes or fortune sort of coming out and saying, Hey, how come there aren't more entrepreneurs in the enterprise B2B space? Right. And this is where all the value is getting created. And you know, yeah. it, it's, well, it's that was interesting. Our, that was- that was our entire like thesis when we did Yammer was remember we were doing family social networking in 2007. I got really concerned that Facebook was just going to eat that space. And so we pivoted into doing Yammer, which was enterprise social networking. And the, you know, and I didn't even know what SAS meant at that point, but the, the, the insight we had is why, why is um, B2B software not being created in the same way as consumer software? Why is it not, being made viral, why is it not being made easy to use? Why are they not using like you know modern techniques like A/B testing to you know figure out like the better version of things? Um, you know, all, all, you know wh- why you know why aren't they slurping in your address book and getting to invite coworkers? Um, so you know, it's all these those types of insights. You know, why why aren't they doing a rapid release cycle? You know, we we were you know why, why do they do these like crazy like you know, annual releases, we were shipping, you know, code every week. Um, so there was, you know, we didn't really understand why business software was being created in a different way than consumer software. And, and there was just a, an arbitrage opportunity in taking consumer techniques and applying them to the enterprise. Um, and so I think like that was like one of the things that, that Yammer kind of, we kind of figured out and, and people started calling that the consumerization of the enterprise. And, um, and now, and now, now there's no difference really in the types of um, talent that's entrepreneurial talent that's pursuing B two B versus B two C. It's all kind of the same technique, same talent pool, all that kind of stuff. But ten years ago, it was a very different talent pool, and we were, you know, the, the the Yammer folks were really, you know, fish out of water whenever we go to like any sort of like enterprise conference or um, dealing with analysts or any of that kind of stuff. We were like these consumer guys trying to learn how to do business software. Well, and it turns out you taught business software how to do software, right? Because, you know, I can remember feeling this way back in, I don't know, 2005, 2008 timeframe, uh, where it's like, there's nothing for us to learn from other enterprise tech companies. We have, we have things to learn from consumer tech companies, product-wise, marketing-wise, distribution, et cetera. Um, because at that point in time, in the early to, early to mid-2000s, um, all the innovation was on the, uh, on the consumer side and, and, you know, you got, you guys bore it out. And so, um, what are the areas that you're most excited about now, David? Well, there, there's, there's a few, there's a few of them. Um, so we still like, um, 
SaaS, obviously, what we've been talking about. Um, my, my favorite types of SaaS companies are still the, the, the viral SaaS companies like Slack, like Zoom. You know, those are kind of quintessential examples where if you can get your users to recruit other users, um, I mean, that you know, you've, you've kind of got the growth model of a consumer company with a monetization model of a SaaS company. That, I mean, that, that's sort of like, that was very much the Yammer idea. Um, I mean, that, that's my favorite kind of SaaS company. Um, my, my partner, um, Jeff Floor, who uh, was the founder of StubHub, which is the original ticketing marketplace, um, now I think a $4 billion uh, division of eBay, um, he, he's focused very much on, on marketplaces. And the big shift that we've seen there is a shift from kind of product marketplaces to service uh, marketplaces. And you're starting to see, um, I think, a lot of... Um, kind of industry verticals get get tackled. And so a lot of like talent marketplaces or service marketplaces for industry verticals, uh, we think that's like a pretty um, exciting area. We um, Jeff wrote a blog post called um, LinkedIn's New Craigslist, where, um, I mean, other people have talked about this idea, but I think he was the first to write about it, that, um, that LinkedIn is kind of getting unbundled the way that Craigslist did. And that there's a lot of job categories um, that, um, that, that people are now creating uh, new vertical uh, sort of uh, labor marketplaces around. So, we're so, in, so in other words, LinkedIn's collapsing on its own weight and it needs to be sort of broken, atomized? Well, I don't, I don't, know, I don't think it's necessarily collapsing. I think LinkedIn provides like a base layer of functionality like all horizontal sites do, uh, but there's an opportunity to take verticals um, and go deeper. And so, for example, we have... Um, a nursing marketplace that we're investors in called Trusted. Um, and so it's, you know, I- included in the trusted functionality, there's like a lot of like LinkedIn type, you know, like nurses have a profile, but it's, it's much more specific. Um, so you've got a resume, but you've also, you know, like LinkedIn, but then you also have licenses and, and you know, Trusted understands the, the regulatory side of it and what licenses are necessary and they integrate with hospitals and, um, and so it's it's just they've they've customized it for um for 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 that industry uh you know very different kind of company we're in uh it's called dre alliance where they um drayage is the is trucking between to and from ports so you know the shipping containers that um that you know show up at the port um, they have to be transported to a local warehouse to or from and um and that's what they do and so they've created an Uber-like marketplace for that particular service. Uh, so there's a lot of like areas of these like B2B services that we think can be turned into marketplaces. Um, and, you know, LinkedIn just doesn't provide that. Uh, they, they either, you know, it could be a job category they don't even deal with, like, like Drayage, or it could just be one like nurses where they just don't go deep enough in that functionality. And so you see a world that has a lot of, and uh, you tell me if this is the right, language to use to think about it sort of purpose-built network marketplaces that bring people services and goods together in a pretty niche down sort of way a niche down purpose-built network uh marketplace yeah i think if you're an entrepreneur listening to this podcast right now and you want to um and you want a, a startup generator or an idea you want an idea generator i would like just um think about like every job category on LinkedIn and just figure out the one that LinkedIn is not really serving very well and see if you could figure out like a way to create a, a vertical LinkedIn around that job category. Um, you know, um, I think there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of categories that aren't adequately um, covered by, by LinkedIn. And if you, and if you figured out the right functionality, it could be very interesting. Now, I don't think it necessarily means that your site should look like LinkedIn. It may end up, looking quite different you know one of the <clears throat> one of the theories that we have is we, we like it when a when a job can be kind of unbundled itself so you know like the reason why uber is successful is you're not hiring a driver you're, you're not you, you don't use the app to hire a driver uh you know as, as a job category you you you, you hire you, you pay for a ride and so to the extent that you can kind of atomize or break up a job into tasks and then sell those tasks that that tends to work very very well um, so the, the way a Fiverr yeah. does, by way of example. Sorry, who? who? Fiverr, you know, uh, I don't, a, I don't know if I, a freelance marketplace. 
Okay. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I think fr freelancing is an example. I do like that. logo design and you know things along those sure. lines. Various different talents. Yeah. Absolutely. Ex exactly. Well, right. So instead of like you know creating a a job market for designers, you just basically create a, a kind of freelance marketplace for for the tasks, the jobs that they do. Um, th that's definitely like one way of going going you know, going about it. Um, you know, it, I hate to interrupt you, but it's interesting what you say. We recently had Joe Pine on, uh, cause it was, it's the 20th anniversary of the experience economy coming out and they have a new version of it out. That's, that's really awesome. And one of the things that he's talking about now is, uh, the, what's, what's next after quote unquote experiences are outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, 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 and he calls those outcomes transformations that you deliver an experience that changes something. Uh, for the customer. And what I said to him is, okay, well, how do I think about this if I'm not somebody who's, you know, thinking along these lines, sort of orient my head? And what he said was exactly the thread you're on, David, which is think about the outcome, think about the result, and orient, orient yourself there. So, in other words, um, the, what the customer wants in this example is a logo. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you, you, um, no, I think that's exactly right. That you're, 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 you're you, you, you'd rather have the the outcome than than an employee. And um, yeah. if you can figure out a way to kind of atomize the the job into just the the, um, the 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 outcomes that you want, then that that works very well. Pay for the ride, not the driver, or the right, car, for exactly. that matter. Yeah, yeah, you're paying for the outcome of getting to point B, not for you know anything else. Now, I'm also curious to ask you, and I. I get there may be some things you don't want to talk about in this regard, but um, I'm fascinated to get your take on how birds doing. Yeah. I mean, I think um, birds doing very well. Um, the, I mean, I think they're a really good example of um, getting ahead of this uh, gross margin problem. So um, the, the, the founder, Travis, so, you know, starting about a year ago, the, the, the board um, started really raising this issue of, of, of gross margins and, um, and the company collectively made a decision that they would get to, you know, positive new economics, you know, positive contribution on every ride, even if it meant sacrificing market share. And over the past year, they were able to do that where, you know, every other scooter company was basically losing <clears throat> money on every ride. We were hearing, you know, some scooter companies were losing $5 on every ride, um, you know, uh, and then, you know, and, including some very big companies that are trying to get into the scooter space. Uh, we heard they're losing multiple dollars per ride. Um, but Burr got to the point where they're making about a dollar on every ride. And, um, but they had to sacrifice some market share to do it because they just weren't willing to drop scooters everywhere. There were some cities they didn't want to operate in. There were some continents they didn't want to operate in because they just weren't able to charge the, the price point that they, that they needed. Um, you know, and they weren't willing to drop scooters in places where you know, maybe they don't get used enough. Um, and so, you know, there was a sacrifice, but I think it really paid off because they're the only scooter company that gets positive in economics. And as a result of that, they were able to raise a, a pretty big Series D uh, this past summer. And I think a lot of other co companies are now kind of struggling to catch up with that insight that, um, that you know, you, you, you got to have, you, you, you got to solve the gross margin problem. So this is fascinating. It sort of circles back to where we were at the beginning with, um, with, you know, going off the rails. How do you, what lens do you use, David, to look at, on one hand, the unit economics, the gross margins, et cetera. We don't want to lose money on every wide. But at the same time, Bird uh, is really at the forefront of designing a new category. And, and per the blitzscaling part of our discussion, the market's now demanding it. It's a, a really cool way to get around. People are excited, et cetera, et cetera. There are competitors coming in. How do you know where that magic line is between sort of wanting your economics to be right, but at the same time, not seeding too much of the market? Yeah. I mean, I think for the first year, it was really just about um, proving that there was product market fit and demand and, and, kind of, and, and blitz scaling, getting market presence. Um, but then, you know, I'd say right around uh, the beginning of the second year, the, the board started, you know, we started adding growth investors to the board and, and, you know, early stage investors are what they're investing in is that this new thing is actually it's just going to find product market fit. I mean, that's really when you're a seed Series A investor. Like, if you just know that something's going to grow explosively over the next year or two, that's kind of good enough. Now, you know, we understand that that's not like a business, but it's 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 a starting point. Like, you you kind of assume that you can fix everything else. Um, 
And as you get later and later stage investors, they start to scrutinize um, the numbers a, a lot more, the operating history, and they get they get a lot more concerned about you know margins. And obviously, you know the ultimate example of this is the public markets. You know they scrutinize like WeWorks S one rejected it. Um, so you know the, the late stage investors are kind of in between, and um, so so good late stage investors can help advise a company on the which metrics are are changing in importance. And um, you know I think it was pretty clear uh, the, the the board conversation at Bird really shifted at the beginning of the second year to look. It's great that we've proven product market fit. Now we have to prove this is a business. And um, you know and and and. To, to, to his credit, you know, the founder, Travis, really, really got it and made it part of his mantra and, and um, drove, drove this push for efficiency internally. Fascinating. Now, I know I don't, I don't have you for a ton of time. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch on before we get ready to wrap, David? Um, what, uh, no, I mean, just whatever, whatever strikes your fancy. I don't have an agenda. Well, I always <laughs> love to talk to you about category, right? And so it's been yeah. a while since we had this kind of a conversation. I'm, I'm curious kind of where you are in your learning cycle now is, uh, you know, you get deeper and deeper into being a VEC converting from an entrepreneur and, and how you think about category creation, category definition and so forth. Yeah, I, I think category creation is critical. Um, I'm a big fan of your work in this area. I'm also a big fan of, um, you know, what Benioff has done at Salesforce in terms of marketing. Um, you know, I, I recommend, it, you know, he's written a few books, but the, the, like, if you just read like one thing, you should read chapter three of Behind the Cloud on, on marketing. It's really, I, I got a lot of value out of it, frankly, when I was competing against him, just understanding what he was doing. <laughs> what we're dealing with here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, but I've come to kind of believe that this category definition is, is critical. And, you know, I sum it up by, by saying that he or, or she who defines the category wins the category. Um, you know, it's, it's I mean, it's, it seems pretty obvious, right? That if you're the one who, who gets to define the category, that you, it puts you in the best position to win it. And if you're not the one defining it, then somebody else is, and you're probably losing. Um, and I think the the importance of category definition is that, I mean, why is it important to be that sort of category winner? I think it's because the category winner gets to do all the order taking. So, you know, like in, in sales, in sales, I you just know, can't I remember, help like, laughing that. It's great. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. It's like, you know, you look at like Salesforce today, okay? Being a sales rep at Salesforce today is, it's, it's just easier than it was when, if you're at Salesforce in the first year, because everybody understands that they're the category leader in CRM. So, you know, if you need a CRM tool, you just call up Salesforce and buy it. And so there's so many sales that you get by default when you're the category leader. Again, you just get to do all the order taking. Now, there will also be those sales which are hand-to-hand combat where you've got a really scrutinizing buyer um, who, who wants to compare you to a bunch of different solutions and, and you're going to have to kind of work for your dinner in those cases. But you know, that's what every sale was like in the early days of Yammer. And, you know, by the, by the, by the tail end, they were all getting easier because we were sort of more seen as this, this category leader. So, you know, another way to put it would be, you know, the old line about, um, you know, nobody ever got fired for, for buying IBM. I think that the modern version of saying that would be no one ever got fired for buying the category leader. And, you know, if you become the category leader, you just get all these sales by default. Yep. Uh, the other thing that I would argue is uh, if you start to analyze things or you look at business through a category lens, the other th- aha you discover is categories don't take off until there's a leader because it's this weird thing in the, in the human mind. Human beings don't want choice, right? We don't have to think about well, like which, which um, uh, you know, fill in the bl- blank category of product to buy, right? Per, per your point on Salesforce. And so if there's too many products and it's not clear who the leader is, I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. And I'm not, I got other things to think about. Yeah. I think categorization is the way that humans deal with problems. It's like the first thing we do is kind of categorize them. And, um, and so when you, when you kind of give definition to a new category, you're helping people understand that the problems that they're experiencing are of this type and therefore require a certain kind of solution. And if you've, if you've kind of, got the positioning as being the category leader, then, you know, you kind of 
default win those those deals. Um, so so yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of 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 that whole way of thinking about it. And what I find advising startups is that that most I say many, if not most, startup founders are really uncomfortable with um, this type of of marketing. I mean, the, the marketing they understand it's it's um, I sometimes compare uh, marketing to the SAT, where there's like two types. There's kind of like the mass section and the verbal section. Like the mass section of marketing is performance marketing, is campaigns. Everything is measurable. Everything's testable. You can just look at the response rates. You have, you know, you, you put in a certain amount of dollars in, dollars out. And founders really get that because I think, you know, to kind of a, a computer science-y type mind, it, it it's very mathematical. It makes sense. The, the part they have they even I, I hate to interrupt you, but they even yeah. gave it a different name because they don't like marketing. That today, for the most part, is called growth hacking, right? <laughs> growth hacking, growth hacking, lead gen, performance marketing, all that kind of stuff. And it's um, it's more of like a math brained type person is the right skill self skill set for that. Um, and then you've kind of got the um, the verbal side of the of of marketing, which is everything around what we're talking about which I think is very hard for people to define exactly what it is because it's, it's hard, it, you know, it's hard to define the, the outcome uh, in, in sort of like numbers terms. Um, but it's, but I think it's intuitive that, that defining who you are um, and where you fit in is sort of like critical for a company. So it's very hard to put metrics around this, but as an activity, it's very, very important. Um, and I think, you know, so, so, so the first thing I think starts, you know, should understand is just, okay, you've kind of got the math section, the verbal section. Don't, I don't, you know, a lot of times companies will try to find someone to do both and it's really a different skill set. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm fine with the idea of there kind of being two marketing departments, like the growth hacking and then the, um, the kind of the more brand marketing. Um, I think that's, um, you know, don't try to find the unicorn who can do it all. Um, but you know the, the the brand marketer is the person who's going to kind of define who you are and 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 how you fit into the landscape. Um. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I see this I see this mistake with CEO founders all the time. They look for a, a CMO candidate who's got all this. For the most right. part, it doesn't exist in the same brain. Um, right. And I even see CMOs make this mistake. It's like I ask them all the time, "What's your superpower?" right? You've got to have a personal niche down. What's your area of focus, right? When I was a CMO, I was not confused about like, am I the guy with the spreadsheets doing the performance analytics? I'm not that guy. I need an unbelievable team on that. I, it's like I, I have a blind spot the size of the Grand Canyon on that stuff, right? But on the strategic creative shit, that's where my superpower is. And, you know, right. I think like any, any leader who's trying to be a good leader, you want to build a team that um, kind of um, uh, mitigates your liabilities and amplifies your strengths. But I think a lot of marketers make the mistake of trying to be all things to all people. We, we live at a time where data and analytics is more powerful and more valuable today in marketing than ever before. And, and we're, you know, a lot, a lot of marketing is, is kind of uh, skating to where that puck is going, so to speak. And I think that's wise. But the mistake that I see to your point is you're forgetting there's this magical, creative, strategic, black art that is much more intuition and we, we can't uh, over-focus on the data and the analytics. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things I learned from you, Chris, is that no one really cares about your features, at least not, you know, there's a, there's a right time in the conversation to talk about features, but, you know, these startups, they just love issuing press releases on their new feature and they get the marking out in drips and drabs and it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't penetrate the clutter. I'm a big fan of, 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 sort of putting together these announcements into lightning strikes that have more sort of meat around them than just getting out your, the, the press and the, in, in drips and drabs. And the other thing that, you know, I, I, I learned from you is that, um, is that the, the most important thing is to articulate the problem, you know, that, um, that the person who articulates the problem the best is, is just kind of presumed to have the answer. And so that's the thing to be really, you know, really articulate about. And um, I remember at Yammer, you know, we were constantly searching for new ways to try and explain the problem to people. And, you know, sometimes we talk about it as like the Dilbert problem that, you know, the companies are too bureaucratic and, and you know, and we need to help solve that. And sometimes we talk about it in terms of the org chart that, 
the org chart's a really good way to divvy up responsibilities, but it's not a great way to divvy up information. And uh, we were constantly searching for different ways to talk about it so people would get what we were trying to do. And um, and and that's really and, and you know and, and that's really the essence of of marketing. And then once you've articulated the problem, then you can start describing the solution, and um, you know at a high level. And then and then the features can support that. But um, but too many startups just want to jump right into talking about their features where they haven't really set up the nature of the problem they're solving. Um, you know the other thing that that I really encourage people to do is you know t tell me what you do in two to four words, like you know basically the I mean, I tweeted this uh, a week or so ago, and I, got, I think I remember this tweet. I've never gotten more angry responses to a tweet. I mean, <laughs> what, what exactly did you say about describing yourself in four words or something like that? I, I just, I just said no one has time for an elevator pitch anymore. You need to be able to say what you do in two to four words. And people got so angry, like they accused me of having no attention span, or that you know I was. I mean, it's like they felt like I was kind of callously disregarding what they did because I wasn't, you know, and I, I, I replied, look, the world does not owe you its attention. You know, it's up to you to get the world's attention. You got to be able to do that in a crisp way. And, um, you know, so when we were doing Yammer, what we, what we called we were doing enterprise social networking, you know, three words, that's it. I don't need more, you know, when we were doing PayPal, we called it emailing money. That's it, two words it's possible to define what you do in just a few words. I mean, I've, and, and part of it was just fatigue. You know, when you're like a founder, you get asked what you're working on hundreds of times, thousands of times. It's like the number one thing everyone always asks you is like, what are you working on? What are you doing? And like, I just got like so tired of answering with like an elevator pitch. I just tried to get it down. It's like, you know, with Yammer, was, if they were in the business, I would just say enterprise Facebook. You know, it's like two words. So, like, yeah. oh, okay. Because, you know, you just get tired of answering the same question. But I think it's a good practice. Um, for, you know, if, if you can't describe what you're doing in just a couple of words, maybe you haven't thought about it long enough, you know? Well, you know where I land in this. I agree <laughs> with you. And I think everybody arguing with you is, uh, <laughs> is going to fuck their company up. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, so, so, so to me, like, if you can define the category in, in just a handful of words and, um, and then create, um, you know, and and, and and that and that name sticks. Then um, you you can then define, um, you know, what what are the key features of this category? What are the you know you can kind of position yourself and deposition others. Um, so um, so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of that that technique, and um, you know, I think that's that's the thing that I think SaaS. The founders of SaaS startups today, I think, have probably the hardest time with is just, you know, trying to go out there and, and define what they do, define their category in a very crisp way so that they can kind of um, dominate it. You know, they love talking about their features. They have a much harder time talking about the, you know, what, what category it is they're creating, what the problems are solving. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> and hopefully by the time you and I are done, that will be much less of a problem than it is today. <laughs> yeah. All right, David, anything else you'd like to touch on? No, I think that's covered a lot of ground. So awesome. great, great to see you as always. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for coming back. As you well know, or I hope you know, you're welcome back anytime. This is your podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah. um, thank you Happy for, uh, thank you for being such an inspiring entrepreneur and now investor. Well, th thanks for having me on the show, Chris. It's always, always a lot of fun to talk to you. Anytime. Thank you, brother. Okay. Take it easy. There he is, David Sachs. And uh, I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And if you did, you might also um, love episode number 103 of Follow Your Different with Eric Yuan. Eric is the founder of Zoom. He's a billionaire. And he created a $20 billion publicly traded company in Zoom in about eight years. He's an incredibly affable guy. And if you, if you want to understand how to build legendary uh, category dominating businesses, check out Eric Yuan on episode number 103. Also, um, you know, one of the things I didn't know that I would love is um, I love hearing from you. And some of the emails that, uh, that I get and tweets and LinkedIn's and all that, um, really knocked me over. Uh, I had no idea um, what a difference in my life it would make hearing from people who enjoy the oddcast. 
So if you want to send email, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. You can track me on Twitter and Instagram at lockhead. And you can just search my name on uh, LinkedIn if you want to connect up there. And I want you to let, I want to let you know, I do everything I can to respond personally to everything that comes in. It's hard sometimes, but I work real hard at it and I really appreciate your notes. All right. We would like to thank the legendary David Sachs and his firm, Craft Ventures. You can check them out on the internet at craftventures.com. The amazing nonprofit onelifefullylive.org. Look, here's the reality. Best we know, we only get one life. And uh, while we're here, why not make it legendary? And my friends at One Life, our nonprofit, trying to help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out, the number one life, fullylive.org. Growwire.com. It's what legendary growth-oriented executives and entrepreneurs are reading on the internet today. Check them out, growwire.com. And is it time to scale yourself? Why not check out the power of a virtual assistant? with my dear friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance. Check them out at bottleneck.online and get yourself back the most important thing we all have, which is time. And my friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for more than 20 years. And as you know, your website is often the first thing people experience about you and your company. So check them out at atre.net. That's Atranet. And also, if you're like me, uh, you love animals and um, your heart is also broken by the horrible wildfires and the damage it's doing to both people, property, and of course, uh, the animal kingdom in Australia. Check out the good people at worldwildlife.org and make a difference today. Worldwildlife.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we'd love it if you shared the shit out of it. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. A couple special shout-outs today. Um, hey, Brad Wise, thank you so much for your legendary email and for turning so many people in your life onto this podcast. Thank you so much. Hannah Frankman, for your wonderful note. Bless you. Uh, Von O'Connor, for your nonstop love and support. TJ Waldorf, for your kind words on Twitter. Thank you. I'm honored. Uh, Namaste. (laughs) Glenn Alsup, for tweeting kind stuff about Play Bigger. So glad you enjoyed the book. And Kenneth Kinney, for having me on your podcast, your wonderful podcast, A Shark's Perspective. If you want to check that out, it's episode number 187 of A Shark's Perspective, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, Tamara Quinman. I hope I'm... Excuse me, Quillman. Tamara Quillman, so glad you enjoyed episode number 128 with Dr. Sean Peterson. I agree with you. He's an amazing and inspiring guy. And also, Mr. John Woodcock, for your ongoing love and support and for continuing to, uh, you know, uh, share all your wonderful digital love notes. Thank you so much. All right, I need to remind you to teach entrepreneurship. Remember the sage words of David Lee Roth, who said, hey, man, that suit is you. Listen to Kate Lang. Please be kind and rewind. Remember... The passing lane is for going fast. That's why it's called the passing lane. Get out of the left-hand lane if you want to take it slow. (laughs) Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holm, CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Uh, Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.